Uh, go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 is where we are today. If you can't find it, it's kind of near the beginning of the Bible, right after the book of Judges, okay? So that's where it's at. Now, as we get started, as you're turning there this morning, I just going to, we're just going to get right to it. I'm going to get really real with you guys. We don't like commitment. We don't. We don't. I, I think that's common to all of us to some degree or another. Because here's the thing. When we talk about commitment, if we commit to something over here, that means all the other options over here we have to let go of. If we commit to one thing, that means we can't do all these other things. And we know that. I feel that way sometimes. Like I am I'm really committed to working out three days a week until I don't want to get up in the morning, right? <laughs> or I'm... I would say, I don't like to brush my teeth at night because if I do, that means I can't have food afterwards and I'm not ready for that kind of commitment. I was really committed to that joke earlier to kind of regret that now. Uh, anyway, so, um, but commitment to the things in life that really matter, all right? Committing to the things that really matter seems to be on the decline. I mean, think about it. We will commit ourselves to a two-year cell phone contract and yet, Sometimes we won't commit ourselves to the relationships in life that matter the most. Think about commitment to church. You know, before COVID happened, back in January, the stats that were coming back uh, on regular church attendance is that the average churchgoer would come to church one time out of every six weeks. Once at, one out of every six weeks. And, and, and to a certain extent, I kind of get it. I mean, you know, you're coming to church, you're committing yourself here, and what that means is all these other things that you could be doing on a Sunday morning, you got to let go of. You know, whatever's on TV, the sporting events, all that sort of stuff, we're just going to let go of all of that. And that's hard. That's hard to do. It's a little bit of a death that happens inside of us. When we commit to one thing, we have to die to all these other things. And I think that that scares us. Well, church, over the next four weeks, we're going to read the story of Ruth. This, this short little story in the Old Testament. And I think, honestly, I think this is one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. It's absolutely incredible. It's a story about a family that experiences tremendous loss and emptiness. A kind of emptiness that, that, that really only few of us will ever experience. But then at the same time, God, through his faithfulness, comes back around and fills them again. And we're going to see this throughout the story. And in this first chapter, we find an incredible story of commitment and loyalty. It's, it's really a story of commitment when it doesn't make sense. It's commitment when it's risky. So what we're going to do this morning, if you're willing and able, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to read the first five verses of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and, returned there, and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would illuminate to us your word, speak powerfully to us, and help us to apply it to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, everyone. Well, our story begins with a family. There's a husband, a wife, and two sons, and they're Hebrews. They're living in Israel, and they uh, are living at the time of the judges, okay? And this was actually a time at the very early stages in the nation of Israel. It was a time when God had really promised them provision and protection, but famine strikes, Famine comes over the land. This is most likely because of sin that was going on with the people. And so this famine was part of God's, really his loving discipline for his people to bring them back to him, okay? Elimelech, though, he really has to make a choice. He's at a crossroads. See, he's got the situation where his family may starve to death. There's no food in the land. They're living in Bethlehem, which is kind of ironic because the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread, and there's no bread in the house, okay? And so he has to make this choice. Can we stay here in the house of bread with no bread, or should we move? Should we try to find provision for ourselves somewhere else? In other words, he's saying the, the, the choice is really, can we trust God for this promise that he's made to us of provision or Or should we just go and try to find it ourselves? So Elimelech chooses the latter. He chooses to pack up his family and all their stuff, and they begin this long journey around the Dead Sea to the land of Moab. Now let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. See, Moab is this country that's to the southeast of Israel, and you can see where Bethlehem is there. So they got to travel all the way around the Dead Sea down to Moab. Now, What I think is interesting about this is we may judge Elimelech a little bit for his choice, but but maybe we shouldn't. Um, I mean, can we blame him? It seems like this may be, on the surface of it, the most sensible choice. The most reasonable thing to do to provide for his family is to say, you know, there's no food here, so then we got to go down here to Moab and look for food. But the thing that's really interesting is that When we learn more about Moab, things start to take a little bit of a turn. You see, Moab started as a nation from a a weird relationship between Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, and his eldest daughter, okay? And that nation, as they began to grow, rejected God, began to worship false idols, and on top of that, they tried to wipe out Israel on a number of occasions. Essentially, this nation was one of Israel's enemies. And so the author mentions Moab, get this, seven times in, the, in chapter one alone. And I think by doing that, it's kind of like the author's leaning into us a little bit. And he's like, guys, they went to Moab. Moab, can you believe it? Like, he's like telling us, you know, this was a bad choice that he made. Because essentially what he's saying is Elimelech, has not only rejected Israel and his identity as an Israelite, but he's rejecting God. 
He's rejecting the promises and he's choosing now to identify himself with Israel's enemies. That's what he's choosing. And so the author's helping us to see that. Well then, tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies and after his death, his two sons take wives from Moab, which is against God's law, by the way. Israelites were only supposed to marry other Israelites and not marry with people outside of Israel. They live there for 10 years. They don't have any children. And after that, like their father, the two sons die as well. This family rejected God and they came to Moab searching for life and hope. But instead of life, the men of this family only found death. And instead of hope, the women of this family only found hopelessness. I mean, think about it. In that culture, the women were not allowed to have jobs. They were not allowed to make an honest living, if you know what I mean. They were not allowed to own land. And because of all that, Naomi was truly alone. She, w- she was supposed to be reliant on her husband for provision. And then after the husband dies, reliant on her sons. But she has none of that. She has no, no husband, no sons, no land, no inheritance, nothing. And so she's doomed. At this point, she is doomed to a life of poverty and homelessness, being destitute. She's utterly hopeless. And here's the thing with Naomi too, is that she knows that if her daughters-in-law come with her, if her daughters-in-law join her on this journey back to Israel, that they are basically committing themselves to her same fate. They will move to Israel and they will not be able to marry an Israelite. They will be alone, homeless, poor, completely hopeless as well. Well, the next thing that happens in the story is that Naomi hears about food coming back to Bethlehem. There is bread once again in the house of bread, which is awesome. But Naomi now has a choice to make. Is she going to now leave Moab and then head back home? And, uh, or will she stay in Moab? She decides to go home. So she packs up her stuff. She packs up her two daughters-in-law, makes her way back around the Dead Sea. And on the way they literally come to a crossroads. It's really a time when she stops and she turns to her daughters-in-law and says, you know what? I, essentially, she's saying, I can't live with myself if you come with me. You guys have to go back home. Don't commit yourself to this life of being homeless and destitute. Look at verse six. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's, 
She's essentially pronouncing this blessing on the two girls. She's telling them, you know, may God bless you with, with an incredible love and rest. This, this blessing that was really only meant for God's people, and she's pronouncing it on these two Moabite women and sending them home. But look what happens. Then she kissed them. And the kiss in this story really represents farewell, goodbye. I'm never going to see you again. She kisses them. And what do they do? They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So Naomi, in her trying to plea with them to go back home, that first plea fails. And so she's going she's gonna to try a second time. And the argument that she's going to present is something that we don't really understand in our culture. It's based on this Old Testament law called leveret marriage, all right? And I need to just take a moment to explain what this is so that we understand what's going on. See, leveret marriage is, a, is an Old Testament law that God gave really to preserve families and to protect the inheritance, to, to keep it in the, in the family. And so... Um, Let's just put it up on the screen. I'll kind of show you how this works. So a man and a woman would meet and they would get married, right? And if they did not have a son, but then the husband dies, then essentially what would have to happen is that that woman would be left alone and homeless and destitute. So then the husband's brother would come in and marry the wife and they would bear a son. And that son would now be like the son of the dead husband. It would be like that son is that dead husband's actual son. So then that son would then continue the family line and would receive the inheritance. So it kept the inheritance in the family. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is what Naomi is going to use now to argue, hey, girls, you need to go back home. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. She says, Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? See that? That's what she's arguing. She's like, I don't have, there's no more brothers for you to marry. Verse 12. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. If you can imagine, these women have been family for 10 years. They, they truly love one another and they can't imagine life without one another. This is just devastating to them. They've already lost their husbands and now they have to say goodbye to each other. And so they wept. Orpah makes her decision. Look at what it says. It says, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. This was that sign again, that sign of goodbye, farewell, and I'm never going to see you again. And so Orpah packs up her things and heads back to Moab. But look what happens with Ruth. It says, but Ruth clung to her. 
This word clung is, I, I think, really, really interesting because this is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 2.24. The same Hebrew word that's used when, when God says that a husband, a man, will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It's, it's covenant language. It's language that's like saying, you know, it's faithfulness. It's, it's loyalty. You guys, this is commitment. It's Ruth saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. No matter what happens, no matter what's going on, I'm with you. Ruth is committed to that. Now, Naomi, she's still like, no, like this can't happen. You have to go back. And so look at verse 15. She makes one more plea with Ruth. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. In this just stunning and beautiful statement of love and devotion, Ruth pledges herself to Naomi. And she's pledging herself to God. She, she even calls on God to hold her accountable to this decision that she's making, right? She's saying, I'm with you no matter what. And Naomi, you know, she's just been given this incredible gift and yet the scriptures say that she says nothing. I can just imagine, I, I, I feel like that silence is just deafening because she is so broken over the fact that Ruth has committed herself to her. That, that she knows that now Ruth is not going to have a life that she really should have. She's not going to have a husband or children or inheritance, but she too is going to be destined for homelessness and poverty. And so she's broken over that. Well, they make the journey around the Dead Sea, the two of them, and they come to Bethlehem. Verse 19 it says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, was in an uproar because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Is this the woman that left 10 years ago with Elimelech and, his, and, and their two sons? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. You see, her, her name Naomi means pleasant. And she's like, look, don't, don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
Now, if we were to summarize really the main point of chapter one, it's, it's basically this, that Naomi left Bethlehem full. She had everything, right? She had a family. She had husband and two sons. She had her inheritance. She had her, fi- you know, her financial and retirement plan was all set up. She had everything going for her. And she got brought back empty. Her family was taken from her. Her status was removed. And she was doomed to a life of homelessness and poverty. What's worse is that her culture kind of dictated that she would stay that way. There, there was really no way for her to get out of this desperate situation. This is just how things would be. And so the real question that we have to wrestle with, I think, in chapter 1 is this. Why would Ruth, I mean, really, why? Why would Ruth choose to commit herself to Naomi? Why would Ruth identify herself with this woman when it meant her own downfall? It seems so unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense. It is not the sensible choice. But Ruth willingly goes to Naomi and says, listen, no matter what, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that we are more like Naomi in the story than any other character. Because think about this. Before we come to faith in Christ, we're hopeless. We have rebelled against God. We have run from him, sinned against him. We deserve his wrath. We are alone, broken, and dead in our sins. And then someone comes to you and says, I'm with you. I'm with you till the end. His name is Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us, right? He comes to us, and this is the good news of the gospel, you guys, the incredible good news of Jesus. It's not just that Jesus died for your sins and then he just kind of goes off because he doesn't want to have anything to do with you like some aloof, benevolent God. That's not who God is. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins because God is intensely committed to you. God is intensely committed to you. That in your hopelessness, Jesus Christ willingly chose to identify himself with you. And he left glory. He took on bodily form, put on flesh so that he could identify with you physically. Right? He experienced every temptation that we have, every great suffering that we could experience, all so that he could identify with you in your pain and in your suffering and in your struggles. He even went to the cross and died. The the immortal dying on a cross so that he could identify with you in death. And all of this so that then we could identify with him in in, in his resurrection, in life. See, this is one of the most, most wonderful things about God, I think. God knows what it's like to walk in your shoes. He knows what it's like to hurt the way that you hurt, to bleed the way that you bleed. He knows this because he willingly identified himself 
with you. He is intensely committed to you. Now, because Jesus Christ identifies himself with us, that actually informs us on how we then should live every day. I mean, if we're going to be like Christ, then that means that we should love with the same kind of intense commitment that Jesus Christ loved us with. And in the time that we have left, I want to just give you three quick ways that you can apply this in your life. I think that we can see this, first of all, in our social life, like with our friendships. I think we can see this in our marriages, but then also in our relationships with the rest of the world. So here's the first one, in our social life, with our friends. Look, (laughs) honestly, very often when we have friendships, we choose to identify with others because we benefit from it in some way. I mean, we identify with others because it makes us look good. It, it makes us more popular. It makes us seem more important in the eyes of the world. It puts us another rung up on the social ladder. We may have certain friend groups or even have a boyfriend or girlfriend for that very reason because it's going to help us socially. I certainly did this. When I was in high school, uh, I had a group of friends on my swim team that I made my life about. Like, they were my identity, all right? And when the leader of that group decided to reject me, the other people in the group were so afraid of rejection as well that they all jumped on board with him and began to reject me too, and suddenly I was out. You guys, it crushed me. And I think that I found that we will never find joy and hope and peace in our friendships when we establish those friendships and relationships for our own personal gain. It will only lead to pain. And so if this is you, I want to ask you, how can the gospel transform the way that you view your friendships? Am I saying go and like, you know, break up with all your friends and like, you know, your boyfriend and girlfriend and all that stuff? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, let's let the gospel transform the way that we think about our friendships. Instead of running after making yourself more popular, instead of trying to make that that one friend group love you, what if instead you loved them expecting nothing in return? What if you loved them with that kind of commitment, the same commitment that the Lord Jesus Christ loved you with? Here's another way. What if What if you take your friend group and you look outside of that group and you see someone who really needs a friend right now? Someone who's alone, who's who's feeling broken, and you invite them into your friend group and you love them with that same kind of commitment. Those are ways that 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 the gospel can transform the way that you uh, that you love your friends. So that's the first one. What about in our marriage? See, marriage, I think, is the strongest way that we will identify with one another in this life, right? I mean, it really is. I mean, in our culture, we look at, at, at the way that we symbolize marriage is one way that we do that is how the wife takes the name of the husband. It's literally identifying with one another. And when we take vows in marriage, I mean, what, what's the standard vow, right? It's, it's for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, till death do us part, It's I'm with you. I'm with you no matter what. Now, often when our marriages get strained, that commitment begins to get difficult. 
it wanes, and we start to imagine ourselves in a life where we don't have to keep that commitment. That vow that we made, that I'm with you of marriage, it begins to feel more like a shackle than a joy. And so, we were going through those times in our marriage, and I mean, you guys know this, the answer to the, to the problem is not trying to fix the other person, right? You guys know this. <laughs> the solution to the problem is to go right here. And I think it starts with just saying, I need to recommit myself to love my spouse the way that Christ loved me. I need to recommit myself to loving my spouse with that same faithful, loyal, committed love. Coming back to them and saying, I'm with you no matter what. No matter what we're going through, I'm with you. What if our marriages consistently reflected the gospel this way? You know, what if we chose every day to commit ourselves to our spouse and we just say, look, I, I know we're going through a lot right now, but I'm with you. That, that would change some things. Here's the last one. How does the gospel change the way that we view our relationships in the world? Well, the gospel tells us that we ought to identify ourselves with those who are being marginalized. And right now, our world is in pain. Our world is screaming out for justice because of racial discrimination that has been taking place for hundreds of years. They're crying out for our governments to write legislation to end this injustice. And, and while I think we may need some of that, legislation is not going to solve the problem. Legislation is not going to stop fear and anger. Legislation is not going to take away racism. All of that is stuff that exists as a result of the fall in the human heart. And we can't make laws that take that away. Only God can do that through the power of the gospel. And you know how God is going to do this? He's going to do it through you. He's going to do it through his church. I believe at the very core of my being that Christians need to lead the charge in this. We need to lead the charge in the change that needs to take place. And if we lead that charge in providing a solution to the racial tension in our world, it begins with each of us demonstrating that faithful, loyal love of God to, to one another on both sides of the racial divide. It's going to someone else and it's saying, look, what's going on right now is not fair. It's not right. But I'm with you. I'm with you no matter what. Now, what am I not talking about? I'm not saying to all the white people in the room to go to the black people and say, hey, I'm sorry for everything that's happened, okay? I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm just not saying like, you know, go and find a random person on the other side of the racial divide and become friends with them. You guys, all of these things are so disingenuous and not helpful right now. What we're talking about is simply loving the people that we're around with the genuine and committed, faithful love of Christ, that we love them in that same way. I think this applies to us in two ways. I think first, we recognize for some of us that our own heart needs a change. 
that there's fear and anger in here that needs to be eradicated. And the only way that's going to happen is for us to come back to the gospel message. That the gospel is that while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we deserved God to be angry at us, that he sent his son to die for us. And he loved us, intensely committed to us. We need to let the reality of this message sink deeply into our souls and humble us. And humble us to give us compassion for those that we fear and compassion for those that we're angry with. And then really the second part of this is then just ask yourself, who do you know that's already on the other side of the racial divide, both black and white? Who do you know? How can you show them love? How can you show them that you're committed to them? How can you show them that same love that God has loved you with? How can you demonstrate that to them? You guys, the beauty and the power of the gospel is this, that the gospel message brings us from life to death and it transforms the stubborn and arrogant heart into a heart that's filled with love and compassion. And so church, as we end today, as men and women who have been transformed by the grace of God, by the power of the gospel, may you every day live in step with the gospel, identifying yourself with the marginalized, with the poor, with the broken, and loving others with that same intense commitment. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful that you have loved us with this intense commitment, that you have loved us so deeply, so much that you would want to identify yourself with us, that you would want to know every single pain, every hurt, every struggle that we deal with, that you would even go to the cross and die, and die in our place. And Lord, we ask for your help because our friendships and relationships, our marriages, and our world right now needs more of this. We need more of this intense, committed, faithful, loyal love. We need, we need more of that in our world now. And so God, would you raise us up? Would you charge us to leave this place today remembering what you have done for us and sending us out to love others in the same way? Oh Lord, we love you. But the love we have for you pales in comparison to the love that you have for us. So God, thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.